Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Greg McEwen, and I am here with you on this journey to learn so that we can accelerate and accentuate a life of real purpose. A few months ago, I got an email from a publisher making the case that the book they were about to publish was the most important book in the history of their imprint. They asked whether I would endorse that book, and after going through the manuscript, I was so eager to do it. The book is simply called Purpose, but the subtitle is a volume in and of itself. What evolution and human nature imply about the meaning of our existence. Wilkinson is wrestling with the secrets of the universe. He is doing something bold. Using principles from a whole variety of scientific disciplines to provide a framework for human evolution that reveals an overarching purpose to our existence. The description of the book is clear. Generations have been taught that evolution implies there is no overarching purpose to our existence, says Wilkinson, that life has no fundamental meaning. We are merely the accumulation of tens of thousands of intricate molecular accidents. Some scientists, according to Wilkinson, take this logic one step further. The fact of evolution, he writes, is to them inherently atheistic. It goes against the notion that there is a God. But is this true? Is evolution and the belief of an overarching purpose to our existence inherently at odds? Wilkinson certainly believes that they are not. So if you've ever struggled to reconcile faith and reason, I think Wilkinson's profound book Purpose may have been written for you. I believe Purpose is an essential book by every measure. Beautifully written, superbly researched, and at least potentially life-changing. You will, I think, never think about your life or the earth or the purpose of each in the same way again. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Let's get to it. Samuel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So help us to see the journey from like birth till the point that you wrote this book. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a journey. I so right now I'm I'm a I'm an associate professor of medicine at, at Yale and I wanted to write this book for almost 15 years now since I was a first year medical student. Mm. And it came about basically because in my first year of medical school was the first time I really started to confront this this big and important theory of evolution. I went into medicine from a bit of a roundabout way. I studied engineering and had never really grappled with what evolution implied about human nature and about our origins. And I grew up religious. And so there was a bit of a, a conflict that emerged in my mind. It was quite uh, vexing for a period of time. And I, I spent several months kind of wrestling with this and studying it and thinking and praying and 
reflecting and kind of in a, a sort of epiphany, things seem to resolve themselves in my mind and I view mm. things a little differently. And ever since then I had wanted to write this book. Okay. So that's interesting. Now, how did you end up at medical school in the first place? Like, just give me a little more color to that. Yeah. Well, as an undergraduate, I studied mechanical engineering. And as I got to the point where I started thinking, okay, what do I actually want to do? It started leaning more and more towards some sort of biomedical engineering. And I, I did a little research in that. And at, at one point I had a conversation with uh, a mentor who said, you know, you should really just think about going into medicine. This is a position, you can do a lot of interesting things. You can do research, you can treat patients. And my brother actually at the time was was prepared to apply to medical school and conversations with him and so forth. You know, I shifted direction a little bit. I was probably going to get a, a doctorate in engineering at some uh, in some form, but but went into medicine. So you know, that's, that's how I ended up. I, I was fortunate to go to a great medical school in, in Baltimore, spent four years of my life there and had some great experiences. And, and then after graduating, came, came up to New Haven, Connecticut, where my family and I have been ever since. So go back to that wrestle, that period. Yeah. What really required this thinking? I mean, you're implying that it's just was there, was it just in the air or was it that you were studying the theory of evolution specifically? Like how direct was that initiation? Yeah, I had been studying it. I had been wrestling it and wrestling with it. Two issues in particular were difficult for me. And one is this sense, which I believe is mistaken. And, and one of the things that I tried to correct that evolution was totally random and haphazard. And the implication that our lives are essentially an accident and ergo meaningless. Mm, okay. uh, that was something that was off-putting and I think is still off-putting for many people who almost everyone has a, a, a sense to seek purpose and a meaning in life. And at least on one level, on the highest level, a what I would what I would call a, a rudimentary understanding of evolution implies that that's all just an illusion, that there's no meaning or purpose to our existence, that it's, it's an act that I, I think the last 20 years or so in evolutionary biology, there are, there's a framework that that's not necessarily the case. And I'm, you know, I happen to go into that further detail as we, as we converse. Another part of the theory of evolution that was really off-putting was what it implied about human nature. And again, I think that was a result of my somewhat elementary understanding of of the theory. And, and, and this, I think when the theory first came out, it was 1859 when Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species. And, you know, there's a sense that, oh, you know, at our core, we must be selfish, right? If this is actually true, there's this wonderful quote. It probably never happened, but, you know, the, the Bishop of Canterbury or someplace, his wife said, well, if this is true, let's, or let's hope this is not true. And if it's true, let's hope it doesn't become widely known. And I think yes. the thinking was, if, if this is true, this what this implies about human nature is not good, and it's much more complicated and nuanced than that. And there's a there's a lot of there's a, a huge amount of data to suggest that yes, we do have the capacity to be selfish, but we also have an immense capacity to be altruistic. Uh, so so those two aspects. One is kind of the 
the randomness or uh, what this, this one physician writer called the, the doctrine of randomness. That was a big kind of stumbling point for me. Another was this notion of what evolution implied about human nature and how, at least from a, my uh, elementary understanding, was not good. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're just wrestling with the axiomatic underpinnings of the universe yeah. <laughs> and human nature. That's all. Deep questions, yes. That's all that's at stake here. But I want to have a sort of a, a moment here with you because we took our family to the Galapagos Islands a few years ago. And of course, that's where Darwin was, where he was making these you know, pretty extraordinary observations about, and not just limited to there, but that was sort of a crescendo moment in his thinking about how the world works, how nature works, and he's observing it directly and he's trying to make sense of it. And it's a pretty amazing place to be because both when he was there and even now, the natural world interacts with the human world in a way that's unlike, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the world uh, because you can be within, you know, just just a few feet of of most extraordinary richness of wildlife, and and they're not afraid of humans, and that you don't touch them, and that's in the law, of course. But you could have easily, because they just go to sleep wherever you're walking, and they're just, you know, nature's everywhere, and, and so there is something really magical about that, and marvelous to sort of imagine him being there trying to make sense of what we're experiencing uh, as well. There's something in what you're saying, I think, right from the beginning implies that how people interpret his writing at the surface level is not actually even what he wrote or what he meant. Is this, is this, does this sound right? Does this ring true? What are your thoughts? Well, a lot has changed since then. You know, as Darwin wrote and as he developed this theory and he dealt with the the consequences of the theory and the, the implications it had for society, it was pretty clear that he he shifted into an area of disbelief in, in a creator. You know, there, there's, there's a, at the very end of the origin of species, there's this sentence and in the initial edition, it went along the lines of, you know, but by by this, various forms of animal life are evolved. In a subsequent edition, he added this these three words, by the creator. And it's anyone's guess whether at the time he just did that to kind of appease his audience, which was largely composed of, of believing Christians, or whether he actually believed at the time. He later wrote that you know, he, he, he regretted doing that. He, he clearly shifted his, his theory, for him at least, clearly shifted him into a, a, an area where he did not necessarily believe in a higher, you know, divine being that, that somehow orchestrated this. But I think, you know, there, there have been subsequent developments and observations that now make it clear, at least on this this part of the, the concept of randomness, there's a lot to be said for the fact that it seems like there are higher order principles whereby patterns just keep emerging over and over and over again, Same. such that randomness wasn't 
nearly as much of a driving force as was originally assumed. I think it still played some role. For instance, you could say, you know, your eye color is determined by a random reassortment of your parents' genes, but the fact that you have eyes and they are shaped and configured the way they are and the remarkable structures that they are is not random. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This idea of, of whether life is random or not is like entirely random or not is, I, I don't think it's a, a trivial question at all. I remember in graduate school reading Fooled by Randomness, which its sort of fundamental thesis is that everything is random and only humans have this predisposition to find patterns where they don't really exist and then to lay onto those patterns meaning. And uh, and so I sort of went through a period, and I'm not dissimilar, I think, to what you're describing of going, okay, well, what does that mean if if you if you really just subscribe to the fact that life really is randomness? Uh, do, does it matter? Does that does it have any implications? And I felt that the direct implications for my life, you know, like it, I ha it, it came with a specific feeling and and a sensation, and of course that sensation grows out of the idea of, well, that if it's all random, therefore it is, it is all without meaning. <laughs> and <laughs> this is why, of course, it is such a fundamental axiom that, uh, that, of course, you were wrestling with and that you've now wrestled with in, an all, in a more formal way in this book, because meaning is the only 
it's like the only antidote to the suffering that is so universal in the human experience. And so if you say, well, it's all random, all this suffering is random, there is no meaning to it. Uh, it, 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 is, um, it is extremely... It's a bitter uh, pill to swallow. Yeah, well, extremely. And, and, and if you were to go to its total conclusion, I think that it, it would be rather than just one more idea that people sort of adopt in, in a sort of half form, I think it, it would be have extreme effect on the psyche of anybody who would really observe it and, and hold on to it. Well, I, I think you're right, and I think it has had an effect on our collective psyche as, you know, and, and certainly in, in Western society over the 150 or so years since Darwin had, had initially published the origin of species. Yeah, talk to, talk to us about that. What do you mean when you say that? You know, Nietzsche said that that God is dead, right? And and you know, th this was you know somewhat contemporary with this emerging view of this notion that our existence is is an accident. Uh, I think there is a lot of evidence now to suggest that that is not the case, and I think that's good news. That doesn't necessarily bring us to the conclusion that, oh, there is a purpose and there is meaning, there is God and so forth. A lot of what I write in this, I have a chapter dedicated to this issue of randomness and the, really the non-random nature of evolution. Richard Dawkins would agree with the fundamental biological principles I lay out. Yeah, I, I think most people know him as, as probably the most outspoken atheist of our, of our time. He would certainly bristle with any theological implications I try to uh, connect to it. But I, I think increasingly this is not controversial. And, and there's this emerging picture that there are higher order principles that have you know, guided, biologists would hate the use of that term, by the way. Many uh, would not use the word guided, maybe constrained, that have constrained <laughs> evolution to go in certain directions. Um, but it, it, it's certainly becoming clear. And there's still a lot that is not known about this, about why certain forms tend to evolve and others do not. But I think increasingly this is becoming acknowledged in biology that there are these emerging patterns over and over and over and over and over again that, that speak to this. Can you outline, you know, the, the sort of the your key points within that chapter? Yeah, this goes back to in the seventies and eighties and nineties. There was a, a famous biologist named Stephen Gould. He worked and taught at Harvard, and he proposed this thought experiment. He said, well, if we could somehow rewind the tape of life and it watch it again, then nature would have come to a totally different result, that everything was so contingent upon these chance circumstances. And, and, and you know, that was a prevailing view. And he was very respected, uh, certainly had his critics, but he was respected. And, and this was a, a prominent view. Since that time, really, I think, primarily by the work of a, of a biologist named Simon Conway Morris, who has just brought together many, many examples of what is called convergent evolution. And this is where, this is the phenomenon where creatures that are very, very, very not closely related develop the same structures or functions or, or what have you independently. And so, you know, one example that I, I, I provide is the birds, bats, and butterflies. Their supposed last common ancestor did not have the capacity to fly or wings, but they all developed this capacity independently. 
Uh, and another example are the body shape of dolphin and, uh, dolphin and the shark. They look very, very similar. They have this streamlined body. They have dorsal and pectoral fins that help them you know, maneuver through the water. But the dolphin is a mammal and is believed that, that the dolphin's ancestors were land-dwelling and somehow came back to the water and developed the same body type as a shark. And they look very, very similar. In, in some instances, they have a light shading on their underbelly and a dark shading on the top. And this helps camouflage them. So from viewing them from above, you can't see them. Or from below, you can't see them because the light is contrasted against the the light of, uh, of the sky. So, you know, dolphins and sharks are not closely related at all, but they, they you know, look incredibly similar. Yes, it is. Um, you know, another, a classic example is the eye. You know, eyes have evolved. This is an old estimate. Eyes have evolved independently about 40 different times. <laughs> I, I imagine that a, a, an updated piece of literature would would actually have that number as, as higher. And, you know, there are different types of eyes. We have what's called a camera type eye. And we share this eye. It's almost an identical structure as the same as the eye that you would find in a squid. That We are not closely related to a squid, but we somehow developed the almost identical structure independently, right? And, and so you get this, these patterns that occur over and over and over and over again. This is called convergent evolution. So there's this anecdote from Richard Dawkins where he asked a colleague of his to list off a few examples of, quote, good ideas in biology that had evolved only once. And his colleague could think of just a few. And I, I think it's Simon Conway Morris who says pretty much everything has evolved more than once. And there may be only very, very few exceptions. So you get this pattern that, you know, there, there's a, there's a saying I like that, you know, once is, is, you know, maybe an accident, twice is a coincidence, but three times or more makes a pattern. At this point, we're well beyond three. And so there seems to be these patterns that occur over and over and over and over again, such that there are you know, higher level principles, or I think Conway Morris calls them deep structures of biology that seem to constrain evolution to go in certain directions. That, that, that reminds me of um, a quote that, that Einstein is supposed to have expressed, where, you know, it's the one where he was, you know, he's a young man and he's, his, his parents give him a, a compass and he's, he's looking at it and either in that moment or at some point in his life, he, he, he starts to sense a deeper order, uh, you know, an invisible, but obviously, you know, it's, it's like, it's deeply unseen, uh, but, but, but still deeply powerful that, that are shaping the way that this compass works. And, uh, and, and that seems similar to what you're describing here. Yeah. Again, there's a lot that, biologists don't understand about why certain forms emerge over and over again, but there do seem to be these deeper principles. And we don't necessarily know what they are, but there seems to be something at work here. Where again, it's pretty clear to me at least that it's not in total a random and haphazard process. Yeah, and and you know, you this this is therefore a a a counter to the idea that the world is entirely random, or indeed that evolution is entirely random. Yeah. You're not arguing, I think, evolution is is its 
that there isn't evolution no. or that this is not how the natural world has come to be, uh, but that it is not the correct reading of the current data that we have to say this is the result of entire randomness. You know, it, wh whatever it is, it's not that from your point of view. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. More, anything more on that, that specific subject before we move to the, to the sort of the, the second area that sort of originated this, uh, this wrestle that you had? I mean, is there more on this subject of, of, of just randomness and, and, and what evidence we have to suggest that it isn't just driven by randomness? Well, there's a, a, an analogy that I have that I think may be helpful. So again, I, I mentioned I studied engineering as an undergraduate. There's a, a manufacturing technique that is called injection molding. <laughs> and this is used to make several everyday items such as, you know, toothbrush handles, plastic bottles, and so forth. <laughs> In this process, you have a solid material. Very commonly these days, it's plastic. And you heat it up until it becomes liquid. And in the liquid form, it is injected into a, a hollow cavity of a preformed structure okay. such that when the liquid cools and, and then it reverts to its uh, solid state, it will retain that structure. And that's a little bit how I think of this. So if you could somehow zoom in on the particles during this process on these liquid particles moving about, it would look like they are randomly kind of bouncing around. But when you take a step back, they are filling the void of, of a mold, of a pattern. And this, is, this helps me think about this a little bit. So, you know, you can imagine a mold in the shape of a very intricate tree. And, you know, these, these mutations are essentially kind of filling that void and they end up, you know, forming this, this tree of life that, that you know, we we have and enjoy <laughs> in the natural world. So I think that helps me at least a little bit understand how things can look random from up close and then you take a step back and it's, oh, there's a pattern. I really like that as a, as, as a description because it, it, that's another way in which one can say, okay, there could be natural law yep. underpinning the universe that we, that we exist in. And yet that still allows for something like a maximum a sort of a maximum freedom within those within those constraints right like within these constraints that there can be a lot of of evolution a lot of i don't know if a choice is quite the right word when you're thinking about the natural world but you know i i'm sort of i'm taken because perhaps because of spending so much time at at cambridge now and thinking about Sir Isaac Newton, I mean, I, I, I don't even know how to describe it really. What, what he did with Principia Mathematica, where he disappears into a room effectively for two years and comes out. I mean, honestly, it, it makes me emotional even to think about it because it's unbelievable. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible what he, what, what he did. How could he come out two years with that level of clarity of, of identifying three laws, okay, there are relatively, that's a, that's a funny word to use to make my point, <laughs> points that have been made that, that update uh, some of what he wrote, but effectively he described accurately 
not only how the, the you know the the immediate world works around him and the forces at play invisible forces but also to a large extent the entire solar system and universe that are all working by it it, it, it is it is a leap of of understanding that is just impossible that, that's all I can describe it as and so anyway I'm thinking of that in relation to what you're describing that that there are laws that seem to to at least challenge this idea of pure randomness the Newtonian laws are not a they're not consistent with the idea of total randomness yeah it, it, it reminds me a little bit of we some sometimes in biology there's a disagreement as to what is the definition of life and whatever it is it has to be a little bit on the on the border between order and chaos, and chaos. If, if it's too ordered you know, it, it can't work. But if it's too chaotic, that, that doesn't work either. It, it, there's this fine line. And so I, I do think, you know, some level of randomness or unconstrained motion or something, that is, I think that's a critical part. But overall, there are, are these principles and patterns that, that have emerged as, you know, scientists such as Simon Conway Morris have brought together these many, many, many examples I've spent a lot of time recently thinking about how these duality of principles uh, just across all of human experience are so necessary, right? Like that, I mean, you could, you could talk about the, the legal system of justice and mercy, right? That, that would be maybe a classic yeah. example of it, right? That, that, that if, if anything is all justice, then mercy is, of course, entirely violated and vice versa. But, but that that idea of duality of principles is not... An exception. It's like that's the rule that 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 there are these enormous numbers of uh, combinations of principles that if you only apply one, you will inevitably cause problems. You know that they that they only they they become like you know the scissors to, to use C.S. Lewis example, right? That the the two sides of the same you know same instrument. He said that with justice and mercy, but that seems like really what you just described. Uh, order and chaos. You, you said even that the biologists even to define life, you need those both both working. I think that feels so accurate and in, in, in clear in what you've been trying to write about in this chapter, and then of course in the book more broadly, th this idea of yes, of course there is some randomness. Of course there is some that side of of reality exists, but that that if all you had was that, then that's all you would have. It, it would just self-perpetuate randomness, chaos. And in, in this, maybe more even than the biologists intend by it, but like the very idea that a life is not possible. Maybe even in our own lives, a life is not really possible to be lived well if it's just entirely random. Well, you know, I take no responsibility for my choices. It's just, you know, whatever I want to do, that is the right thing. You know, you do you. I, I just discombobulates a proper oriented life and vice versa is also true if you go all the other extreme and it's all control and it's all rules and it then that you could not call that really a life either you know the pursuit of of, of just comfort and and the elimination of anything unknown that that's the adventure of life is not possible so there's like a sort of a, a philosophical point here that seems to be parallel to what you're describing of you need both. You need both elements to be able to to live a life of meaning. 
Yeah, I, I think I understand what you're getting at. And maybe to just make a bit of segue here, another context in which I've seen that principle in a way that I think is is really fascinating from a philosophical perspective is the relationship between, say, love and sacrifice. So let me let me shift this a little bit to to humans and human biology and our our nature and our psychology and so forth. So just to wrap up, you know, I I, I think what we talked about the the random nature of evolution and how that's not correct and it seems to be a, a larger pattern. Much of which is not random. That you know, that doesn't prove that there is a purpose to our life. It it kind of brings those worldviews a little closer together. Mm. What I the to complete this argument, in in my opinion, requires a, a deeper dive into human nature. So so to bring it back to this concept of love and sacrifice, humans, in a biological sense, we, when our offspring are born, they are extraordinarily premature. Some scholars who study you know, infant development refer to the first few months of life as the fourth trimester. Really? Uh, you know, a giraffe can walk within a few days of being born. In biological terms, this, this language is a little bit obsolete, but you talk about what are called K-selected species, and these are species that have relatively few offspring, and the offspring in which, which they do have, they have a huge amount of effort that they have to invest in to care for and and help rear that offspring from from a young age to maturity. And we are kind of the epitome of that. Yes. And because of this, from a biological perspective, we have a deep, deep capacity to love our children. Okay. If it weren't like that, they wouldn't have survived in the evolutionary pattern of, of, of development. Yes. But also related to that is this, you know, we, we have to say it's it's hard being a parent. Uh, it's right. hard being a, a mother. I would say, especially a mother, but also a father. If you know you're invested in your child's outcome and, and helping to rear it, it's not easy work at all. There's a, a book. I think it was by a woman named Jennifer Senior, in maybe 2014. It was called. And I like the title: "All Joy and No Fun: The Paradox of Modern Parenthood." <laughs> and and the the only pushback I have for that title is modern. Because I think parenthood has always been hard, and, and that's kind of written into our nature and our evolution, because our offspring are born so premature that we have to invest and sacrifice to care for them. But at the same time, this is, in my viewpoint, intrinsically connected with the deep love that, that we have for them. So there you, you see those principles of love and sacrifice, to me, in this, in, 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 in a sort of you know, very worldly and secular and biological way, they're intricately connected. So what stood out to you in this conversation with Samuel Wilkinson, the Yale professor? What can you do differently by challenging the idea that everything is randomness and instead to open yourself up more fully to the idea that there is meaning even in the evolution of the world and of ourselves. Who can you share this episode with so that you can continue this conversation now that the episode has come to an end? Thank you, really thank you for listening. And if you have a minute, please write a review on Apple Podcasts of this episode. And if you go to gregmcewan.com forward slash essential, as a thank you, you can receive, if, if you're the first person to write the review, a year's access to the Essentialism Academy.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.